I mean, let us go before the Lord in prayer. We thank the Lord for the reading of His Word. And let us pray. Gracious Father, we first of all thank you this morning for the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that I go before you in my prayer according to your good, sovereign, and perfect will. Lord, we thank you that a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many uh, wicked. Because, Lord, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But, Lord, you uphold the righteous. You know the days of the upright, and the inheritance shall be forever. Father, my prayer this morning is that those of us who are upright in heart by being your children, we pray, Lord, that we always find our encouragement in who we are in you and who we are as your children, that we should not be ashamed in the evil time or in the days of famine. And, Lord, also not to fret because of the wicked and what they do and the devices that they concoct against the righteous. Because, Lord, you tell us that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and you delight in our way. And Lord, though we fall, which we will, we will not be utterly cast down. For Lord, you uphold us, us with your hand. And Lord, we thank you this morning that though we do fall, though we will fall as uh, believers, though we stumble in this life, that Lord, no matter what, you uphold us. You never let us go. You never let go of our hands. You will never, Lord, let us utterly fall. Lord, the word says that a righteous man may fall seven times, but Lord, you still uphold us. So, Lord, we thank you that though we fall, we will not be utterly cast down. Though we fall, Lord, you will not forget us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And this psalmist says also, that he was young, and now he is old, and yet he has never seen the righteous forsaken. Father, that is such a great promise for us as believers, that even in the darkest valleys of our life, you will never forsake us. You will never leave us. And Lord, you are the only one who can fulfill your promise. Just as you did with Israel when they were in the wilderness 40 years, you, you led them, though they rebelled against you, Father, the you still led them in a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of fire by night. You led them those 40 years, Lord, despite their rebellion, despite their um, disbelieving in the fact that you would lead them into the promised land, despite, Lord, them raising up a golden calf and worshiping it and forsaking you as the one who led them out of Egypt. Lord, despite their faithlessness, them and you still led them through the wilderness. And Father, you do the same with us. You never forsake us, Lord. Though we sin against you. Though there are times, Lord, where we don't want to read your word and pray to you. Though there are times, Lord, where we don't want to live a holy and righteous life before you. Lord, you're still faithful. You still do not forsake us. You still do not cast us down forever. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. And Lord, you will never leave us begging bread. You will always provide for us. You will always provide for us through Christ. Your word tells us, Lord, to ask and it shall be given. Seek and we will find and knock and the door will be open. Lord, you will never leave us begging bread and we thank you for that provision. And Father, we pray this morning also in that light. Continue to heal Sister Dolores. Continue to bless her father as she continues her rehab. Continue to remember Brother Harvey, Lord, as he continues his rehab also. They both wanted to be here this morning, Lord, but uh, they have physical ailments that are prohibiting them. But Lord, we pray that you be with them this morning. Let your spirit be with them while they are uh, watching us on Facebook. Just encourage them in the spirit, Lord, to continue uh, to heal them. Continue to remember Melissa, Lord, as she travels back from Florida, that you be with her also, and uh, Mason and Maddox. Just thank you, ask you to continue to persevere, all of us in here that work each and every day. 
that are in school. Now, Lord, we continue to worship you and do things for your glory, do things in your name. Lord, that we continue to love, honor, and serve you in all that we do. Lord, we pray for our uh, like-minded uh, churches, Lord, in which we have the word of God in common. That you may bless all of our churches, Lord. Uh, Grace Fellowship, Anderson Bible Church, uh, Christian Fellowship, uh, Hope Community Church, uh, Redeemer Church, Lord, uh, First uh, Baptist Lionville, Lord, uh, Iron City uh, Baptist Church, Southside Baptist Church, Lord, we ask you to bless all of our churches this morning, Lord, for unity in the spirit and in the bond of peace. And then, Lord, you continue to bless our congregations and help our shepherds, Lord, to lead and shepherd the church of God well. And bless our members, Lord, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, now as we come as your people gathered as one before you, Lord, with all of our weaknesses and our failings and our needs, Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we need you. We need the grace that has come to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We need to hear your gospel afresh. We need the washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the word. We need your illumination because our eyes are often dull and darkened. Lord, we don't always understand your word with all the distractions that we have in our culture. So, Father, we ask you to wash us and renew us by your spirit through the word. Lord, illumine your truth to us this morning. Lord, we often struggle to understand, so we ask that you would Teach us by your spirit through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would move us, that you would bring to light the greatness of who you are, our neediness, and that you would stir up faith in us, Lord, that we might look to you and to you alone. I pray, Lord, that you remove from us pride in any thought that would hinder the reception of your word as it is in truth in the word of God. Lord, I ask that in all of us now, as your people, that we will receive your word with hunger and thirst and gratefulness. So, Father, feed us this morning through the word of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 We're still in Colossians, the second chapter, in the second part of our sermon that began last week. Uh, a warning against false teachers, part two. So, we thank the Lord for his word. We thank the Lord for being able to preach word expositionally. So this morning we're going to look at the principles and applications. Last week we looked at the structure of the text to see an outline and observations of it. And so this morning we're going to look at the principles that we learned from this text. So we're again in Colossians second chapter. This is our eighth sermon in this book. So Colossians, the second chapter. We're going to read verses 11 through 23. And again, our topic is a warning against false teaching part two. So this is the word of the Lord, verse 11. Well, let's look back to verse 9, again, like we did last week, to get the, the context of where we are. So Paul says in verse 9 of Colossians 2, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and power. So remember, our sufficiency, our completeness is who we are in Christ, not in this world. So we continue. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made with our hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Excuse me, and you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one teach you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things, I'm sorry, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And may he who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. So again, last week we looked at the structure of this passage, looked at the observations from last week, and we begin it with looking at verse 10 where Paul says, because we are complete in Christ. Because we're complete in Christ in verse 10, this is recapping this for a few minutes last week so we can go into our principles this week. So verse 10 says, because we are complete in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 tells us that we are made spiritually complete by a spiritual circumcision. And we talked about circumcision. It was uh, the covenant that God had with Israel, beginning with Abraham, that every uh, male that was born on the eighth day was circumcised. And that was to separate God's covenant people from the pagan nations around them. And also because we're completing him, we're made spiritually complete when he makes us spiritually alive. We see that in verses 13 through 15. And because of that, therefore, do not let anyone judge you on the basis of the law. That's verses 16 through 17. And we talked about what legalism is. We want to get into it a little bit more uh, in this message here this morning. Legalism or ritualism, as it is sometimes called. And then don't let anyone condemn you on the basis of asceticism. We talked about what that meant, and I'll explain that again further uh, this morning. Then we looked at continuing this outline here in verses 20 through 23. Don't submit to legalistic regulations. Why? Because we die with Christ. Because these regulations all refer to that which doesn't last. And these regulations are mere human commands. And these regulations are of no value in curbing sin. So from that outline, we look at our principles this morning. And the first principle is that we are made spiritually complete by a spiritual circumcision. So let's look at verses 11 through 12 again. So we are made spiritually complete by a spiritual circumcision. That is our first principle this morning. So looking back at verses 11 and 12, again, it reads, in him, remember, when you read this, just like we did when we did Ephesians, when Paul says in him, he's speaking to who? He's speaking to the saints. He's speaking to fellow believers in Christ. Remember, verse 10, we are complete in Christ. That is where our completion comes from. That is where our sufficiency comes from. That is where our identity comes from. That's because we talked about this last week. It comes from our skin color. It comes from our uh, socioeconomic status. It comes from what kind of beauty we have, any type of material possessions or anything like that. Our sufficiency as believers comes from who we are in Christ because this is the inheritance that we have that cannot be taken away from us. 
because we are secure in Christ. So Paul says in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism and you also raised with him. So what Paul talks about is circumcision, baptism, and resurrection. So we are made spiritually complete first by a spiritual circumcision. Now the, the first circumcision in scripture that is recorded in scripture took place in Genesis 17 verses 10 through 14. This is the first circumcision that was recorded in scripture. And again, circumcision was a covenant sign for Israel, for the Hebrews, to separate them from the pagan nations. So this is what Genesis 17 says, says we look at the first circumcision, verses 10 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. We're speaking of all the spiritual, all the physical seed, rather, of Abraham. This is my covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So this circumcision was the covenant that God had with them. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign, there it again is again, of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, we talked about that the circumcision for, for young Hebrew boys was to be at eight days old. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or brought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from uh, his people. He has broken my covenant. So, Israel, the covenant people of God at that time in the Old Testament, in order for them to be part of this covenant with God, they had to be circumcised. Okay? So this was the first circumcision. Now, physical circumcision, again, was a a sign of spiritual commitment to be separated unto the Lord. That is why they were circumcised. It wasn't just for the sake of being circumcised. It was a, it was a sign of being separated, being spiritually committed to God. And the Lord would bless obedience and curse disobedience. Because remember, those who were not circumcised, they were going to be what? Cut off from being his covenant people. So the Lord would bless obedience again and curse disobedience. Disobedient Jews would be cut off from the Lord. But ultimately, circumcision did not clean the heart. And that was the big problem. Deuteronomy 10 and 16, God says to them, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Because circumcision was a fleshly act, but it did not change their heart. Because that is what ultimately mattered. And in the book of Jeremiah, the fourth chapter and fourth verse, God speaks with the prophet Jeremiah and says this to Israel also. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the four skins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So what God was telling Israel was that, yes, you are circumcised. Yes, you are my covenant people. But you're still a disobedient people. You're still a stiff-necked people. Why? Because that circumcision did not change their hearts. So the spiritual circumcision that Paul is speaking of in this text, he says you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, 
This was a spiritual circumcision that all believers have. That the spiritual circumcision cleanses the heart and makes us complete in Christ. Unlike the old circumcision, which could not do it. And we do this by putting off the flesh. And the flesh, remember, represents our sin nature. It is the nature in which we war against the Holy Spirit within us who tries to get us to do right. Remember, uh, I think it's um, Galatians 5 where Paul says that the Spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. Because our flesh wants to sin, our flesh desires to sin. Why? Because our flesh is sinful. But the Holy Spirit who resides in us desires that we do good. So there's always that war going on. But in Christ's circumcision, we also experience circumcision in the positive sense. We can be cut off from God because Jesus was cut off from God, not because of his sin, but because of ours. Christ was cut off from God when he was on the cross. When Christ cried out, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did that happen? Because a holy God could not look at sin, the sins of us who were laid on Christ. And as Christ was atoning for our sins on the cross, in that moment, the Father had forsaken him because he could not look at sin. But it was because of our sins. It wasn't because of the sins of Christ, because Christ had no sin in him. So this spiritual circumcision that we have as believers has cleansed our hearts. God has taken away the foreskin of our hearts. He's gave us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. He took that stiff neck that Israel was often characterized as having and gave us a heart that would receive him. So number one, we're made spiritually complete by spiritual circumcision. Number two, we're made spiritually complete when he makes us spiritually alive. That's in verses 13 through 15. So look at what the scripture says here. And you, being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Having disowned physicalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And this is one of my favorite sections of this letter. Christ made us spiritually alive. We have to understand, when we preached through the book of Ephesians, we looked at chapter 2 and verse 1. But what we have to understand as believers is that how we were before we even came to Christ. We're made spiritually complete because we were dead. It was God who made us alive. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 1 through 5. Look at what Paul says here. And you, remember, you see speaking to the believers. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He said the same thing to the Ephesians church that he says to the church here at Colossae. In which you once walked. So what does it mean to be dead in our sins? He defines it in verse 2 of Ephesians 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is God who made us alive. We can't save ourselves. Because Paul goes on in that same chapter, in verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The faith to believe. Not of works. That's anyone should boast. None of us can boast of our salvation. 
None of us can say, oh, I was so good. I was a good candidate to be saved. God saved me because I was all that in a bag of chips. No, we cannot boast in our salvation. Why? Because we were dead. A person who's dead, I've been to many funerals before. A person who's dead has no more capacity to think, no more, no, no more capacity to act, no more capacity to move himself or herself. When they're in that casket, guess what? They're D-A-D, dead, dead, dead. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't talk, they can't think. And that is our state before God saves us. We were spiritually dead. The spiritually dead cannot make themselves alive. And we thank God for his saving work and his saving grace. Man, I thank God because I, if I was responsible for my salvation, then what do I have to thank God for? I can thank me. I thank me for dying for my sins on the cross. <laughs> no, it was Christ who made us alive. We're made spiritually complete when he makes us spiritually alive. And because we were made alive, our sins have been forgiven. That's verse 14 again in this passage in the book of Colossians. Having wiped out, expiated, I want to explain that, the handwriting of requirement. Sin was against us, people. Sin was against us. We were out for the count. But Christ took them upon himself on cross. I want to give this illustration of this handwriting of requirement, which is a certificate of debt. That's what it is in the Greek. If a person committed a crime or owed a debt in the Roman world, they would be in prison and a certificate of debt listing their offense as well as the price that must be paid for their offense would be posted over the door of their cell. So in the Roman world, if you have a debt, you would go to jail. And that debt would be capital one, $1,575 <laughs> would be placed over your cell. Just imagine if it was like that. We had a lot of debt-free debt, debt people. <laughs> Probably so, right? Yeah. Who don't want to go to jail for a debt? <laughs> but anyway, Paul was using the illustration because he lived in the Roman world, so the certificate of debt listed in their offense was uh, listed over their cell. And so what Paul does when he says the handwriting of requirement, what he is doing is he is saying that this certificate of debt was taken from over the heads of the Colossian believers and placed over the head of Christ. You know, when Christ was crucified, they, you know, when they crucified people, you know, the crucifixion was a death sentence. It's like the electric chair. When a person was crucified, their charge was over their head. And Christ's charge against them was, here is Christ, king of the Jews. So his charge against him was that he was king and not Caesar. Because remember, they practiced emperor worship. Caesar was Lord alone, not Christ. And that was the charge against Christ. And so that was placed over his head. But spiritually, the charge against Christ was our sins. Remember, it was your sins and my sins that put Christ on the cross. It was not his sins. Why? Because Christ was sinless. In him was no sin. Christ lived a sinless life. What does Ephesians, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53 remind us? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. Christ paid our debt, our certificate of debt. And this is what Paul is saying here, the handwriting requirement that was against us. And Christ took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. As I said earlier today in our call to worship, 
there was a transfer that took place on the cross. It was a great transfer. And that transfer was Christ taking on our sins. And in exchange for those who believe in him, he imputed his righteousness to us. But why do we praise the work of Christ? Because he took on our sins. We can't pay our sin debt. There are many people now who are living in this world trying to do all good works to assuage their guilty conscience, to, to make themselves feel good about themselves by, by giving to the poor and, and, and being nice to people because they say, oh, perhaps God will see my good works and grant me entrance into heaven or, or, or grant me a good life. But friends, it is not our work that makes us right with God. It is the work of Christ and what he did. And until a person looks to Christ and what he did in place of them, because it was us who belonged on the cross, not Christ. Christ did no wrong. He was not a criminal. He was the God-man. He took our place. He paid our debts of sin that we could never, ever pay. You can live a million lifetimes and never pay your sin at all. That's how costly our sins are. But that's how great the work of Christ is. And that's why Christ is so glorious to us. That's why we're saying this morning, Christ is man forevermore. Because Christ is so precious. He is so sweet. He is so loving. And he did something for us that we can never, ever in a million lifetimes do for ourselves. And Paul is saying here to the believers in Colossae and saying to us that Christ has taken it out of the way. He took our debt out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Thank God for the work of Christ. And because Christ took that Debt, he extended the pardon of sin to those of us who believe. God can forgive the sins of those who are spiritually dead because Jesus paid the penalty for sin in their place. And this is very significant for us to know as believers that God does not merely forgive without cost. Okay. He doesn't forgive without cost. There, there's a cost to forgiveness. And that cost is Christ. God doesn't forgive scot-free. That forgiveness that God grants to us came with a cost, friends, and that was the work of Christ on the cross. Let us never forget that. He pays the cost for their forgiveness in himself. And the forgiveness of sins is necessary for being made spiritually alive, and it is the result of the cross. So we praise the Lord for that this morning. Amen. Which leads to our third principle. Don't let anyone judge you on the basis of the law. This is verses 16 through 17. So now that the believer has been forgiven in Christ, why do people try to put them back in bondage? We see this in verses 16 and 17. So Paul says, so, so means therefore, or because of what I just said, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What does this mean? Again, soul is very, the word soul is very important. It connects this thought with the previous thought. So because Christ won such a glorious victory on the cross, we are to let no one judge us in food or in drink or in other matters related to legalism. We, and we talked about what legalism was last week. That is adding things, adding requirements to the Christian life that are not found or supported in Scripture. 
making laws where there are no laws. And we, I gave examples of, you know, previous church, you know, that our family was in before we uh, left 13 years ago. And we was in a very legalistic system. You know, the women had to wear dresses and, you know, couldn't cut their hair. And, you know, going to movies was a sin. You know, your children couldn't be in a marching band or, you know, this, this, anything that was fun and recreational was sin, basically. You know, adding things to scripture, adding requirements to, to scripture that are not biblical, that is legalism. And what that does, that, that puts people back in bondage. Now, the Spirit of God working in us restrains our sinful desires and that doesn't give us license to participate in anything openly sinful. But legalism goes far beyond it. They go all the way to the other ditch. And they put requirements in to say, okay, if you don't do this, if you don't wear this, then you're not a Christian. You know, you can't be a member of our church and all those different things. But that is not what scripture teaches. I thought of a church where the men couldn't, couldn't wear facial hair, you know, couldn't have a beard. And, you know, it, everything was worldly. You know, it's, it's crazy. You couldn't wear a jewelry except for a wedding ring. You know, this, this is all these, it's legalism. But what does Paul tell us? Don't let anyone judge you on the basis of the law or matters of legalism. Because the life that is centered on Jesus and what he did on the cross has no place for legalism. And when he talks about food or drink or regarding the festival, he's speaking of the Old Testament law. Remember, he's speaking to the Colossians in, in their context. And what was happening was there were some Jews among them who were trying to tell the Colossians, just as they did in the Galatian church, that, hey, you all are Christians now. You know, you know, I have to still keep the festivals and the, the, the holy days, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, and all these different feasts that the that the Jews uh, had done, they were trying to hold them to these requirements. And Paul said, said that, no, don't let them judge you in those matters. Because those things were done away in Jesus. And as I said last week, all of these things, Paul says what? These things are a shadow of things to come. All the laws, all the 636 laws of the Old Testament, all the feasts, all the festivals, all the days, Pointed to Christ. That's what Paul, that's what that phrase means. That they are a shadow in verse 17 of things to come. All those laws point to Christ because Christ fulfilled the law. He said himself, he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The sacrifice on the day of atonement was pointing to Christ as the once for all sacrifice for our sins. The scapegoat was led out into the wilderness, carrying the sins away from the people, was a picture of Christ being our scapegoat, taking on our sins. There, there, there are many different laws, all the laws, all the rituals in the Old Testament are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, Paul says the substance is Christ. Once the substance comes, we don't need the shadow anymore. Once Christ came, we didn't need the shadow, which were the days and the feasts. You have some groups of, of uh, within Christianity that try to live according to some of the Old Testament laws. But you can't live by one if you're going to live by them all. you got to keep all 636 of them. Okay, but you have some groups now. They, you know, you have like the, the what do you call it? black people who Israelites. You know, they they speak all these, you know, call Yeshua and all using all these Hebrew words, but they don't speak Hebrew. They speak English. And they, I, I've talked to them. I've debated some of them before. I said, why aren't you keeping all six hundred thirty-six of the laws? Because they can't do it. Why? Because they were not meant to be kept. That's why we had Christ. Because those laws fixed the outside but could not fix the inside. They cannot change the heart of man. That's why Christ came. 
some of those people are some of the meanest people you'll ever meet. <laughs> they are. Very loving. Very harsh. They're miserable. <laughs> because you're trying to keep all these laws, but you're missing the substance. You're missing Christ. And Paul was telling these Colossians, don't let anybody judge you because you're not doing those things. And you Christians don't let anybody judge you because you're not doing all these things that you don't need to do. Observe the dietary laws. Clean versus unclean animals. That was for the Hebrews in the Old Testament. That was under their covenant. Now you know you have Orthodox Jews now that, that eat kosher. Kosher means no pork. And that's fine. But for Christians, we can't say, oh, in order to be a true Christian, you have to abstain from pork. <laughs> they haven't read um, I'm sorry for the penis. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't read uh, Romans uh, 14, which talks about uh, the Christian conscience. We can't make laws where there are no laws. Those are, those are sec what we call secondary issues. They're disputable dispositions, as the scripture calls it. It was called, the Greek word is adiaphora. Those are disputable things. Those are not the essentials of the Christian faith. You're not justified uh, by grace through faith in Christ based on what kind of meat you eat. Okay? That's not where your justification comes from. Paul says your substance, substance is who? It's Christ. He is the substance of all these things. So he's telling the Colossians and he's telling us, don't let anybody judge you because you don't do certain things. All the ceremony aspects of the Old Testament law, the dietary regulations, the festivals, the sacrifices were shallow according to the substance who was Christ. And when Christ came as the God-man in the flesh, the shadows had no value anymore. So we don't let anyone be a legalist and judge us because of these things. These things that were observed under the Mosaic law. They are not bound to us as God's covenant people. Now, Christians are free to keep a kosher diet if they please. Nothing wrong with that. But they cannot think that eating kosher or observing certain days makes them any closer to God than someone who does not. Because it is Christ who brings us to God, not anything that we do. Christ, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. We can't mediate ourselves uh, to God. We go through Christ. So just, because, you know, some, some people say, okay, because I do these things, then somehow, just like in the holy church that I was in for 20 years, you know, the longer your skirt was, lady, you know, the more it swept the ground, the more holy you were. The longer your hair was, the more holy you were. The less makeup you wore, the, the more holy you were. Those are not biblical requirements. Now, of course, Scripture will inform you through the Spirit to dress modestly. That's the, the work of the Spirit. I mean, my wife dresses very modestly. Without having to wear street sweepers, as to call them, <laughs> with tennis shoes on. <laughs> You know, yeah, no pants at all. So those things don't make you more holy. Now, if that's something you decide to do on your own, fine. But you don't judge another brother or sister in Christ out the door because the substance is Christ. And we're not to judge people because they don't do those things, just as they're not to judge us because we don't do those things. See what Paul did there? So that is what this is talking about here. We're not letting anyone judge us. Again, the next principle here, don't let anyone condemn us on the basis of asceticism. Now, I'll explain that word again for those who weren't here last week. Verses 18 and 19. Let no one treat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. 
whom all things, I'm sorry, for whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So notice, if you notice in these two principles, Paul points to Christ. In the first one, he says, the substance is Christ. In this one, he says, hold fast to the head, who is Christ. When you hold fast to Christ, you won't be taken away or taken captive by these other things. So what is Paul talking about in this, these two verses? He's talking about mysticism. One. And mysticism is where people believe that they can have an immediate experience with the with the spiritual world apart from the word of God or the Holy Spirit. We have people who um, like read crystals and you know have crystals on them and, and all these things. They, they, they think that they're in contact with the spirit world or the universe. <laughs> As people say, I was watching an uh, uh, interview with a comedian and she was talking about she prayed to the universe. As if the universe is a person. As if the universe is divine. Friends, the universe was created by God. People say, oh, the universe must have heard me. Oh, the universe was on my side. That's, that's mysticism. That's new age. It is done without the word of God. It is done without the mediation of the Holy Spirit. It, it descends into paganism. The universe is not our God. The universe did not create us. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The Bible tells us in the very opening book, first chapter, first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is where everything begins. And that is where everything ends. Mysticism denies the creator, God. And in mysticism, you have people, as Paul says in this passage, worshiping angels. The worshiping angels was the one of the false teachings that was troubling uh, the Colossian uh, Christians. They were exalting angels above Christ himself. And you have people now who worship angels. But angels, we have to understand, are created beings also. Christ is above all. He is supreme above all. The antidote to that false teaching is more of Christ, exalting him above angels. We're not to worship angels. We're not to revere angels. We're to worship Christ. And then Paul talks about false humility. Uh, and I talked about this last week a little bit. That um, false teachers are the most powerful people that you will ever meet. The false professor of, of, of Christianity. They're not humble at all. You know why? They want you to worship them. And when you don't give them the worship they deserve, guess what they're going to preach about? I know a lot of them around here. <laughs> I talk about some of them here in this pulpit because they exhibit a certain type of narcissism that they want everyone to worship them and worship the word they fall on. And they'll go in church and set up in what we what they call a pulpit and have a Bible open, maybe have a laptop open with the scripture in the background or whatever. They don't teach the word. They open their mouths and just start bloviating, just talking off the top of their head saying, the Lord told me, the Lord showed me this and the Lord showed me that. What do we read this morning in, in uh, Second Timothy 3 and 16? That all scripture is by inspiration of God. If you want to hear the Lord speak, open your Bible and read it. This is the very word of God.
from Genesis 1 and 1 to Revelation 22 and 21. If a person comes to you and says, I got a word of the Lord from you, and don't give you book, chapter, verse, and context, then they don't have a word from you, from the Lord. They're speaking foolishly. They're speaking arrogantly. They have no humility at all to submit themselves to the authority of Scripture. They're speaking foolishly. They're blaspheming God. They're lying on the Lord. They have false humility. And Paul says, what do they do? They intrude into those things which they have not seen. They, they talk about all these visions and stuff that they had, but they haven't had Look, I was part of those kind of churches. I know how they work. I know how they operate. These people are charlatans. They fleece the flock of God for their own gain. They don't care about those people. They only care about themselves. That's not humility. They want all of your money. They want all of your worship. And if you don't give it to them, they're going to go on Facebook live and take shots at people that don't give them what they want. So Paul says, they're puffed up in their fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. And this is the spiritual arrogance of false teachers. Those who believe what they taught. There are few things more dangerous among Christians than spiritual pride and arrogance. And that's what false teachers represent. They're very arrogant. I've been around hundreds of them. So Paul says, don't let anyone condemn you on the basis of the fact that you don't believe them. And he talks about asceticism here. Asceticism is where you try to deny yourself certain things, being, being puffed up and not holding forth to Christ. As believers, we're not to do that because it's dangerous. And what false teachers don't realize is not only are they hurting themselves, but they're hurting their hearers. They're hurting those who attend their churches. They're deceiving people and they're being deceived as we, we read this morning. Deceiving and being deceived. This is what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3. He says, uh, 2 Timothy 3 and 13, but evil men and imposters. Imposters, false teachers are imposters. They will grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being that's what they're doing. And Paul saying, don't let anyone condemn you because you don't have faith. And then the last principle here, he says, verses 22-23, don't submit to legalistic regulations. And the main focus is this, is those three regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which are perishable with um, using them. Again, this is a perfect description of legalistic religion. Legalistic religion is defined more by what we don't do than, uh, than what we do. Legalism is like don't, don't, don't. Don't listen to worldly music. Don't don't talk to girls. Don't, don't look at anybody. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, when I was in college, Back in 9192, when I was an undergrad, and I was part of it, you know, my church in Tuskegee, a very legalistic church. I walked around just feeling so condemned every day. Because I did not, I wasn't taught justification. That when God saved me, that I had been made right, declared right by have the righteousness of Christ. I wasn't taught just the doctrine of justification of the saints. That when God saves us, our sin record has been transferred 
to Christ. And we're no longer condemned. Romans 8 and 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All we heard in church was condemning messages. Basically, whenever I sinned, I was going to hell. I feel like every single, and I sinned multiple times there because I always do. <laughs> so, you you know you're seeing your conscience of it, and you just you, you just so condemned that you're like, what's the use of being saved? If I'm going to feel miserable and, and condemned all the time. That's because I wasn't taught. Justification. That I wasn't taught about the imputed righteousness of Christ that is placed on me as a believer in Christ. And that though I did sin, I do confess and repent of my sin, but my sin does not affect my standing with God and all that in my Christ. For believers, our sin does not affect our standing with God because of Christ as our mediator. What does it mean that the mediator is the go-between and attorney? Christ pleads our righteousness before the Father every day. The Bible says he intercedes for us. As our high priest. Amen. That is a glorious truth for all believers. I did not know that in 1991 and 92 and 93 and 94 and, and, and all the way through. For over 20 years, I had no idea. I never heard the word justification coming out of anybody's mouth. Hmm. It was all, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't look at girls. Don't talk to girls. Don't go to Six Flags. Don't. Don't go to a restaurant with a bar in it, you know, so that means I can go to Applebee's. <laughs> Why? Because they're in there sinning. You're sinning too by being a hypocrite. Okay? But yeah, the, the, again, legalism. I say, you know, forbidding to do things that are not even sinful. My wife and I went to Longhorn Friday night. I guess we were in sin. The people around us were drinking alcohol. I've been so sweet, too. That's what you were good. But, you know, I, I guess because everybody else is drinking beer and all that and having a glass of wine with their steak. And, you know, I guess we're, I guess we're sinning. But that's legalism. That's that do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, don't, 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 don't. That's what legalism is. And Paul describes it here perfectly. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Now, Christianity is a moral religion. It is. And Christianity does set a clear boundary. But at the foundation, Christianity is a religion of positive action about what we do, not what we are not doing. God, through the Spirit, does give us guardrails. The Holy Spirit, who resides in every believer, is serves as our guardrails. Keeps us away. The Bible does say abstain from everything that's evil. But that's not the focus of the religion. The, the focus of being a saint is not about what we don't do. It's what God has done for us through Christ. And because Christ did that work, he saves us, he gives us his spirit, and with that we, as Paul says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is him who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is God who works in us to do his good pleasure. And why does Paul say this? He says, these things, so he says, which seem all, which all concern things which perish with the using. They're not lasting at all, all these requirements. He says, according to the commandments and the doctrine of men. Because that's all these things are. They're the doctrines of people. They're the doctrines of men. They're man-made. All these different legalistic requirements. The theologian F.F. F. Drew said this about which uh, parents would be using. These, they are things which come to an end in the very act of being used. Handling them, eating them, or the like involves their destruction. Food, once eating, ceases to be food. These are not the things that matter most. They are not ultimate realities. All these things that they say don't do, don't do, don't do are not ultimate realities at all. 
They're temporary. And Paul says that these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom <coughs> in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. And that's a good place to land this claim. This is, this is what Paul is saying here. The greatest indictment against legalism in the Bible is this verse, that they have an appearance of wisdom. It appears to be wise to be imposing these things. It appears that way. But Paul says it's false humility and neglect of the body. They have no value against the indulgent flesh. You know what I realized being a legalist system? I had a greater desire to sin because I couldn't stop sinning. I wasn't ever in an habitual sin, but the fact that I was, just like Paul said it, uh, Paul said in Romans 7. He did not know what covetous was until he read the commandment that said you shall not covet. The law exposed sin. That's what the law does. The law is meant to expose sin to us. And the more you are aware of your sin in your flesh and you try to do things in the power of flesh, guess what? The more you're going to sin. It's not going to be restrained. Because you're trying to do it in your own power. Legalist, legalistic rules have no value in restraining the flesh at all. They have no value doing these things. Not going to the movies. Not going to restaurants with bars in them. Wearing long dresses and skirts. Not shaving. Not cutting your hair, not having facial hair, or only wearing a that wedding ring is jewelry, not tattooing your body, whatever the case may be, you can do all that. But you still can't restrain the flesh. You've been doing a bunch of works, but it's not going to restrain the flesh. They have the pairs of women, they have no real value. Doesn't restrain the flesh, rather, it feeds the flesh in a subtle, more powerful way. So, we have to reach to Christ. We have to point always to Christ and look to Christ. He is the one, He is the substance, He is the head, He is the one to whom we are to hold. You can't become a legalist and think that that's how we're going to be right with God. That's how we're going to be accepted by God. No, we're accepted by God through Jesus Christ. It's Christ, as the Bible says, who presents us before God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Amen? The applications here, because we are completing Christ, because we remain spiritually alive, let no one judge us because the substance is Christ. He is the substance. He is the only thing that matters. He is the only one that matters. Gentlemen, let no one cheat you of Christ the head. False teachers cheat their followers out of who they are in Christ. And it's sad to see. I know a lot of people who are part of false churches and they are missing out on who they are in Christ because they're under the bondage of those legalistic systems. And don't submit to legalism for Christ is sufficient. He is enough for all of us. He is our sufficiency. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for delivering some of us in here out of a legalistic system, out of a false system. We thank you, Father, that the substance is Christ, that Christ is supreme above all, that he is the one to whom we are to look. 
He is the one to whom we are to cherish. He is the one to whom we are to hold to. Lord, forgive us the times when we, we try to earn somehow your goodness by abstaining from things or by trying to, to do things or trying to be legalists ourselves. And the Lord, it's not that we should not strive to live a holy and righteous life. But we do that knowing that that is not the substance. The substance is Christ. That Christ is sufficient. That Christ is the head to whom we are to look to. Every time a sermon is preached, it should always point to Christ as the head. To Christ as supreme. To Christ as enough. And Lord, help us as believers to continue always to look to Christ. To continue always hold to Christ. And continue always, Lord, to look at his sufficiency. Father, I pray that you use this message to encourage the saints to find their hope and their sufficiency in Christ. And to convict sinners and bring them to a saving faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.